I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. That's right, I'm your host Kurt Sandvig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, we're going to talk about other famous ghost sightings. But as always, first up, we have shout-outs to all the cool kids. Shout-outs to Nanashi, Rodney, Michaela, Jeff, Lash, Martin, Jim, Jory, David, Jade, Megan, Laura, Shani, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Kira, Rich, Rachel, Laura, Angie, Anthony, Carolyn, Chuck, Dan, Daniel, Dill, Edgar, Heidi, Jeff, Juliana, Kat, Laura P., Laura, Ruth O., Lindsay, Maggie, hi Maggie, Pablo, Matt, and Sean Bishop. Oh, and Lash wants Cassie to know that she is awesome. How's that for a cool group of people? Head on over to patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac and join them, won't you? For as little as a dollar a month, that's right, 12 bucks a year, You can help me make this podcast a little bit better every time. All of the money that you guys give to me help me in editing and getting gear and getting a better microphone and going on investigations. So I know it doesn't seem like a lot, but that extra 12 bucks a year, if you do only $1 a month, will help me out tremendously. All right, let's get on to paranormal news. First up, what was it? Shared stories of a daytime September UFO sighting on Cape Sable Island has people talking, apparently. A near-capacity crowd was on hand at the Shag Harbor Incident Society UFO Museum on October 6th to hear about and see video and photographic evidence of a daytime UFO sighting over Cape Sable Island in Nova Scotia. Now, a lot of people saw this UFO, like I said, it was during the daytime, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was on September 15th when noted UFO researcher Chris Stile got a call. He said, we get to Yarmouth at 3.04 p.m. and the phone rang. It was Justin Brown. He was over-the-top excited. He said, Chris, you have to get to Cape Sable right now because there's been a UFO hovering over me for 10 minutes. Now, while they're on their way over to Cape Sable Island, they got a call from Lori Wickens, who is one of the eyewitnesses to the 1967 Shag Harbor UFO sighting, telling them that he was on site with Brown and they were now at the Daniel's Head, Daniel's Head Beach in Southside. Shockingly enough, when these guys actually got to the beach, the UFO was still there. He said the first sighting, it was quite distant and was out over the water. When I first seen it, that's his words, not mine. When I first seen it, I thought it could be a weather balloon, but something seemed a little odd. At this point, it's basically a white sphere out over the ocean. He said he noticed there was a steady light wind at our backs. It was obvious what was out there was coming against the wind towards us. So this is no weather balloon. Whatever it was, it was moving against the wind. It was an 8 mile per hour wind. He says the sky was blue. There were no clouds. The moon was up, a half moon. Conditions were almost too good, he said. He says when when you see it overhead, it was oriented the same way to us as it was when it was out over the ocean. 
He said he was able to view the sphere through binoculars before it disappeared for the last time. He said his best estimate is the sphere was 2,000 to 5,000 feet up, about the size of a cue ball in terms of apparent size, given how high up it was from them at the moment. So it was big, too. Whatever it was, it was big. He says when reviewing the video footage shot by Brown, the whole clip you can clearly see it's not rising in altitude like a weather balloon. Noting that a seagull enters the frame at one point, proving it's not a blue background with a Photoshop mock-up, as some have suggested. So it's a really, really interesting footage of it, too. There's a photo of this video, which I'll put up as well. If I can find the video, I'll put that on Facebook, too. And it's a weird white orb-like object that's not an orb. It was definitely solid. It was definitely real. And nobody seems to know what it was. The next one up is another video that I'm going to put up on Facebook. And it's of another UFO. This one over Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Now, it's a time-lapse video. It was taken from a pier in Myrtle Beach and appears to show mysterious lights hovering above Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. The person who submitted the video says that they were taking pictures and a time-lapse of a thunderstorm from the pier. He says, I was taking the pictures off the edge of the pier after dark so there was no reflective surfaces around. I did not notice the objects until I returned home and checked the photograph and the video. I don't know what to think about this one. At first, I was like, oh, that's just thunder and lightning through the clouds. But then I caught on to what they were showing. What they were saying is the UFO. And I got to say, I don't know what to make of this one. Interestingly enough, uh, last week, a mysterious object washed ashore on Seabrook Island, about 24 miles south of Charleston, South Carolina. And it was, um, it's a weird concrete-looking, foam-looking thing. Looks like concrete. They says actually is a soft foam. They think it's from a, they know it's from an offshore oil rig. So if you see this photo and they say, oh, look, there's this UFO that we found on this beach. No, no. It's this foam-like padding thing that they put on the pipes for offshore oil rigs. So there's also a debunk in this story as well. There's one that I can't explain, and there's a debunk. I'll put both of them up on Facebook.com so you guys can take a look. Once again, it's Facebook.com slash Paranormal Almanac. All right, that about does it for Paranormal News, but I want to do a special shout-out. This special shout-out is to Allie Ward. Allie Ward has a podcast called Ologies. It's a fantastic podcast. Every week, it's something completely different. She talks to a different ologist, like a biologist or ophthalmologist or whatever. And every week, I go, nah, I don't know if I'm going to be interested in this one. And yet, it is fantastic. It is a fantastic podcast by a lovely woman. Um, she also has a new show called Did I Mention Invention? It's on the CW on Saturday mornings. Again, I highly suggest you watch it. Allie Ward is simply the best. I was lucky enough to meet her after a Crazy Ex-Girlfriend live show in Hollywood. Uh, she's friends with Kat Burns, who does the choreography on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She is as beautiful and wonderful in person as she is on her podcast and her TV show. So if you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it. And just one last thing before I get to this week's episode, I wanted to make sure you all stayed until the end of the last episode where I played the EVP I got at the Omen House. If you did hear it, what do you think? What do you think it said? Well, I know exactly what it says because it's pretty damn clear. But what did you think of it? Speaking of last week's visit to the site where Sharon Tate and others were murdered and apparently still haunt, I wanted to see what other celebrity ghosts are out there. So first up is Gene Harlow. One of the first sex symbols 
bombshells, whatever you want to call her, out there. She was one of the biggest stars in the 1930s, and sadly, she died of kidney failure at just 26 years old in 1937. To give you an idea of how sexy and popular she was, the phrase blonde bombshell was coined about her. Now, here's where a little bit of rumor takes over, because supposedly, her husband, Paul Byrne, used to beat her viciously. Now, this is unverified. From everything I could find, it's unverified. They were married. That part is true. She did have a husband. His name was Paul Byrne. But this might explain why a family who lived in her home in the 70s described hearing sobbing all the time, smelling mysterious perfume, and hearing a woman's voice whispering, please help me. Now, let's stick with Byrne for just a second more, though, because supposedly he also haunts that house. And that's maybe because on September 5th, 1932, just four months after his marriage to Jean Harlow, Paul Byrne was found shot to death in the house. Byrne's butler found his body in his wife's all-white bedroom. He was nude, sprawled in front of a full-length mirror, and drenched in Jean's favorite perfume, which is very odd, if I might add. Now, he had been shot in the head with a 38 caliber revolver, which was still lying by his side. Officially, it was ruled as a suicide. And that's officially, because if you delve just a little bit deeper into this, there's a lot of foul play that seems to go along with that whole, you know, like, it was very, it's very similar to the Marilyn Monroe death, where officially it's a suicide. But if you look into it just a little bit, you go, eh, this doesn't seem like suicide at all. But anyhow, both Paul and Gene haunt this house. But here's where my research got weird. Because that house was owned years later by Jay Sebring. Now, Jay Sebring, in case you don't know, was brutally murdered along with Sharon Tate. Hold on, it gets weirder because it's reported that Sharon Tate, who was dating Jay Sebring back in the day and stayed at his house in 1966. So, J.C. Bring bought the house that both Gene Harlow and Paul Byrne haunt. Sharon Tate came to this house in 1966. The story goes that Sharon was spending the night alone at Jay's house, sleeping in his master bedroom. She later recounted to several friends how she was suddenly awoken by an apparition of a creepy little man who was walking through the bedroom. Here's a little side note. Paul Byrne was sometimes described as a creepy little man. Very interesting. Anyhow, so she sees this creepy little man who is walking through the bedroom. Rightfully so, she freaked out, ran down the stairs, but stopped quickly because she saw another apparition. This one was a dead body tied to the staircase banisters. The corpse's throat was slit. Sharon later said that she believed that the first apparition in the bedroom was the ghost of Paul Byrne. And many people believe that the second ghost, the murdered one, was a premonition of what would happen to her and J.C. Bring years later. How's that for bizarre? I'm going through research I thought was completely unconnected to Sharon Tate and J.C. Bring and those brutal murders. And the first one brings me right back into it. Next up is nearby both the Sharon Tate site and Gene Harlow's house on Benedict Canyon Road. It was the home of George Reeves, who was best known as TV's first Superman. The address is 1579 Benedict Canyon, and George died upstairs in his bedroom from a gunshot wound to the head. 
Now, there's serious debate again whether he committed suicide or he was murdered. Since his death, people have seen or heard him in his bedroom at the house, and rumor has it, again, this is just rumor because I couldn't find the footage, rumor has it, a film crew shooting at the house even saw his ghost in his Superman costume there. I think it's kind of odd that they saw him in the Superman costume because I seriously doubt that George Reeves was wandering around the house while he was alive, wandering around the house in a Superman costume. Maybe he was. I have no idea. It is true that when he was killed or committed suicide, he was wearing one of the Clark Kent suits from the show, but basically he was just wearing a nice suit. So that part doesn't surprise me that he took a suit home from his TV show. Next up is another one on Benedict Canyon, and I gotta be honest, I'm beginning to think there's something going on in Benedict Canyon. Yes, I learned while I was at the Omen House that there's a big magnetic sphere on the canyon that causes a lot of weird, bizarre things. That might be the explanation. For whatever reason, though, it seems to have a hell of a lot of ghosts in just a small area. But this one is Rudolph Valentino. Now, he was best known as one of the most successful silent movie stars ever. He lived at a home called Falcon's Lair, 1436 Bella Drive in Los Angeles, just off of Benedict Canyon. And it's just across the canyon from the Omen House. I actually saw it from the Omen House while I was there. And by it, I mean the gate. You could see where the estate was. I'll get to that in a minute. Shortly after Valentino passed away, the caretaker of his property ran a very successful business by allowing seances and late-night ghost tours of Falcon's Lair. Here's the catch, though. The sightings during this time were probably staged by the caretaker to make a good deal of cash. But even still, there are reports of seeing Valentino walking his estate and footsteps were also heard all over the house. More rumors, but silent film star Harry Carey Sr., who lived here after Valentino, claimed that he had to move out because the house was too haunted. Now, sadly, the main house was bulldozed in 2006. Now, Valentino has also made appearances at his beach house in Santa Monica, where he likes to lounge around on the bed and play practical jokes like knocking on the door. And he's also been spotted at Studio 5 in Paramount Studios, as well as lurking around his grave at at the Hollywood Forever Memorial Park. So Valentino's ghost gets around quite a bit. If you hang out in Hollywood long enough, you might just see him. Next up is Charlie Chaplin, who's most famous for being Charlie Chaplin. If you don't know who he is, look him up. He's fantastic. Now, he also lived on Benedict Canyon, but he actually haunts another spot in Hollywood. This spot is called Musso and Frank's Grill. Now, it's a restaurant on Hollywood Boulevard. It's fantastic. It's just down the street from my work. I walked by it, well, I walked by it pretty much two or three times a week, but I walked by it just the other day just so I can get that old Hollywood vibe that I absolutely love. It's a classic restaurant. Everyone who was anyone went to it. And it seems like Charlie Chaplin still wants to go there because he is often seen in Booth One which is his favorite old booth where he dined almost daily for years. And that's not an exaggeration. He was seen there almost daily in booth one, enjoying the food at Musso and Frank's. Now, here's a heads up, though. 
Booth one is the most requested booth, so be prepared to wait or sit somewhere else. I've yet to be seated at booth one, and I've asked for it quite a few times. Now let's focus on Musso and Frank's a bit more, because again, it's the oldest restaurant in Hollywood. It opened up in 1919, and... There are a few, quite a few ghosts, actually, that are seen here besides Charlie Chaplin. Among them are Jean Harlow. Hey, I just told you about her. Lionel Barrymore. If you know the name Drew Barrymore, then you know the family of Barrymore, which Lionel's part of. Orson Welles, who's next on this list, so hold on. Carol Lombard and Raymond Chandler. So there's a lot of activity at Musso and Frank's. All right, let's move on to Orson Welles. He was best known for Citizen Kane. He died in 1985 of a heart attack at the age of 70. He can still be seen at the old Ma Maison restaurant, which is now called Sweet Lady Jane Bakery. He's seen at the location of his favorite corner table in his signature wide-brim hat and smoking a cigar, which is often smelled by the staff even if he's not spotted there. So a lot of the staff will be walking around and instantly get this giant whiff smell of a cigar, even though nobody in the area is smoking, and obviously no one's smoking inside there, because that's illegal in California. Next up on this list is Montgomery Clift. Now, Montgomery Clift is best known from For Here to Eternity. Now, he can be seen and heard in the Roosevelt Hotel, and I've actually talked about this one before because I had an experience in his old room years ago, room 928. So to hear this tale, you have to listen to every episode of Paranormal Almanac, because I'm sure I've talked about it before. If not, if you ever see me, I'll be glad to tell you that story. Next up is Joan Crawford. I don't expect you to know who all these stars are, so again, I'm going to give you a little history of each person. Joan Crawford starred in the 1962 movie, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane?, And if you have a chance, I recommend watching that movie. Or if you're ever at 426 North Bristol Avenue in Los Angeles, which is her old house, well, she can still be spotted there. Her daughter, Christina, who grew up in the home, said that the house was haunted when she was living there. Obviously, not by Joan, by something else. She would often see and hear things, and things would move or break on their own, which she would get blamed for. In Christina's book, Mommy Dearest, she said because of Joan Crawford's alcoholism, her childhood was a nightmare filled with abuse. So the house was already haunted. Then there's years of abuse happening there. So let's jump ahead to when the house was sold because the new owners started having paranormal issues right off the bat. Odd fires broke out in the home. And there were even reports that children's voices, especially the sounds of children crying, seemingly came from inside the walls. The owners decided to have the house exercised by a minister from the Healing Light Church, and not just once, but numerous times. Christina later said every single owner of this house has had trouble. The first was Crawford. She built the majority of the house. It was a small cottage when she bought it, but most of the house she had built for her. Every single family that has lived in that house has had horrible things happen. Illness, alcoholism, addictions, relationship problems. And now, evidently with the current owner, the walls are breaking out in flames. Those are all quotes. She says, I've heard that in particular, it's the wall that was behind Crawford's bed. 
even though the exorcisms seem to have worked by now, they seem to have taken care of most of the spirits, there are still reports to this day of a ghost caretaker and a ghost dog. Now, I can get how they know it's a ghost dog. You either see it or hear it or feel it or whatever. That's a ghost. It's a dog. I know what both of those things are. But how do you know it's a ghost caretaker? What is this ghost doing that you go, oh, look, there's a ghost caretaker right there. Mm, Take that one with a grain of salt. All right. Next up is Lucille Ball from I Love Lucy. You know who she is. And apparently her ghost haunts a couple of locations in Hollywood. The first place that she haunts is their former Beverly Hills home at 1000 North Roxbury Drive in Beverly Hills. Fun fact, they drive you right by this house if you take any one of those crappy, crappy van Hollywood tours if you're in Hollywood. Don't do it. Contact me. I'll drive you around. I'll give you a better tour. Most of that tour is BS. But they do drive you by Lucille Ball's house. I've been by it. Now, people have heard partying happening here late at night coming from all over the house and in the attic. They can hear loud music and people shouting over it like a swinging party is happening. And if that wasn't enough, the furniture rearranges itself in the house. And there's also reports of things moving on their own right after they're set down. Lucy's ghost is also seen at the Paramount Studio lot in her old offices known as the Hart Building. It is one of the oldest buildings on the lot, which was once owned by Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. People there see Lucy on the second floor and smell Lucy, or at least her perfume, I guess. Plus, just like in her house, things move on their own or get thrown onto the floor there in the offices. There have also been a couple of Lucy sightings at the Jamestown Cemetery in New York where she's buried. Next up on this list is the one and only Lon Chaney. Now, he was the man of a thousand faces. He's seen in such things as The Hunchback of Notre Dame, London After Midnight, and, of course, Phantom of the Opera. Speaking of Phantom, his ghost is... His ghost was, I almost said is, his ghost was still seen on Soundstage 28, which was one of the oldest soundstages, and where they filmed The Phantom of the Opera in 1928. But, unfortunately, Universal demolished it recently. The activity that happened there, though, were lights turning on and off, doors opening and closing, and supposedly, he was even seen there still in his phantom costume. Quick correction so you guys don't have to. I just said Phantom of the Opera from 1928. It's actually from 1925. So no need to send me in that correction. I just corrected myself by looking it up real quick. Okay, next up is John Belushi, best known for Animal House and Saturday Night Live and the Blues Brothers, you know, He's John Belushi. He's fantastic. Well, he passed away at the age of 33 of a drug overdose at the Chateau Marmont Bungalow No. 3. And in 1999, a family checked into the hotel and stayed in Bungalow 3. The story goes, it's just this, it's just a story. I don't know if it's true or not. But the story goes that their two-year-old son claimed to have met a, quote, funny man in the room. Out of curiosity, the mother showed her son a list of celebrities, a bunch of photos that had stayed there, and the kid pointed to the picture of John Belushi and claimed that he was the, quote, funny man who visited him in the room. All right, like Musso and Franks, let's stick with Chateau Marmont for a second, because besides Bungalow 3, there are other haunted rooms, 
Room 64 is one of the most famous rooms in the world. Everyone who is anyone stayed in this room, including Howard Hughes, who stayed in there for several months when he was going kind of batshit crazy. And he would spy on the outside world and the hotel pool from his balcony. But it's room 79 that's said to be the most haunted of them all. There are sightings in this room. Furniture moves on its own, has been seen by both the staff and customers alike. Plus, there are visions of ghosts, ghost knock on the door, even a floating head outside the window have been reported there. And even Boris Karloff himself lived there for a number of years. And a number of reported scary things happened while he was there too, including a woman hovering over a bed and faucets turning on and off. So even Boris Karloff got haunted while he was in this room. All right, from John Belushi, let's move on to Dan Aykroyd. Don't worry, he's still alive. He's still fantastic. But he saw a ghost at his former home in Los Angeles, located at 7321 Woodrow Wilson Drive. Now, he said he's even seen one famous ghost, too. Dan Aykroyd says, I've had several experiences. I saw things moving around on the counter, doors opening and closing, A ghost certainly haunts my house. It once even crawled into bed with me. I rolled over and just nuzzled up to whatever it was and went back to sleep. The ghost also turns on the Stairmaster and moves jewelry across the dresser. Now he says, I'm pretty sure it's Mama Cass because you get the feeling it's a big ghost. In case you don't know, Mama Cass was the lead singer of the Mamas and Papas and had once owned that very house. With everything online and ghost stories alike, there is a different version of that Ackroyd quote. Supposedly, a man died next to the house and was buried there, but I call BS on that. Who dies next to the house and then was buried there? But uh, this other version states, Dan says, I think it was another guy. I think it was the other guy. The guy that died next to the house. I was alone in the house and decided to take a nap. I closed the door to the bedroom, but didn't lock it. I woke up. I saw the door open. And I rolled over and looked at the bed, and I saw the depression in the mattress, like someone was getting in there. And I thought, well, I'm just going to roll over and snuggle up next to it. I'd be surprised if I was his type, but when you're dead, you'll take what you can get. I kind of call BS on that second Ackroyd quote, so take it with a grain of salt. Perhaps it's real, perhaps it's not. If I ever meet him again, I'll make sure and ask him, don't worry. Next up on this list is the one and only Elvis Presley. Now, he was busy in real life and apparently just as busy in death because his ghost has been seen at Graceland, the Vegas Hilton, the old RCA recording studios in Nashville, and the Bel Air home he rented, and that's where he met the Beatles, just a little fun side fact. So, people are seeing Elvis all over the place in life, in death, who knows. And speaking of the Beatles, John Lennon's ghost has been seen a bunch of times, too. His son, Julian Lennon, said John's ghost visited him in the form of a white feather, which is kind of odd because Paul McCartney said he felt John's spirit present during the recording sessions for free as a bird, and John appeared in the form of a white peacock. Paul McCartney also supposedly said, quote, There were a lot of strange goings-on in that studio, noises that shouldn't have been there and equipment doing all manners of weird things. There was just an overall feeling that John was around. And lastly, sticking with John Lennon's ghost for a minute, 
Liam Gallagher of Oasis claimed that he met John Lennon's ghost while lying on a bed at a friend's house in Manchester. All right, let's move on to Errol Flynn, who is most famous for Robin Hood. He died at the age of 50 in 1959 and built a perv mansion with two-way mirrors, secret passages, and secret sex rooms. You gotta read up on this guy. This dude was freaky. You never would have known it by looking at his movies, but the stories that come out of this house are incredible. Now, the house seems to have a ton of paranormal pervy activity too, including a bed blocking a secret staircase and the master bedroom being moved on its own, a spectral naked lady, dark clouds inside the house, flickering lights. Then, in 1980... Rick Nelson bought the house. His son Gunner called the house a living, breathing entity. He claimed a dark, sexually charged energy possessed the house. Tracy Nelson, who was Rick's daughter, Gunner's sister, reported her shower door opening and closing during the night, the toilet flushing, and the shades rolling up on their own. She says she also smelled phantom perfume. Another night, she woke up and she couldn't breathe. She also said she heard a man's roaring laughter. She ran downstairs and collapsed. She could breathe now. And her father asked if she was okay. And she responded, tell that man to stop laughing. Now, her father obviously had no clue what she was talking about. But the next night she came home and she was by herself. So she went into her room. Ten minutes later, she heard her father's guitars and gold records being smashed and utter chaos downstairs. She hid in the closet because she thought they were being robbed. And an hour after the noise stopped, she went downstairs to discover that nothing had been touched. She said she then heard that same laughter she heard the night before. From there, let's go to Rick Nelson's father, Ozzie Nelson, best known for the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. Ozzie's ghost has been seen in his former home. The homeowners claim that the faucets are turned on and off, doors open and close on their own, and that the lights will go on and off. One story is that one night she felt the bed covers being moved gently away and felt light kisses on her neck. But, not surprisingly for this podcast, nobody was there. So that's two for two on the pervy ghost stories. Let's move on to Mary Pickford. The silent film actress Mary Pickford and her husband built and lived in their estate known as the Pickfair Estates. And on several occasions, both Mary Pickford and her husband witnessed an unknown woman's ghost. When they got divorced years later, Mary kept the estate. Later, she married Charles Buddy Rogers, and after that, she died. Now, he reported he saw Mary's ghost on a few occasions. The estate was eventually sold to Jerry Buss, who who also saw Mary's ghost there. Then in 1988, Pia don't worry if you don't know these last couple of names, it doesn't matter. Pia Zadora purchased the estate, and after living in it for a little while, she demolished the estate. But rumor has it, she said that her and her kids saw a woman's ghost, and that's why she demolished the house. So the Pickfair estate seemed to be haunted from the get-go. Whether people were seeing Mary Pickford's ghost, or just this random woman's ghost that Mary Pickford and her husband both saw... I don't know, but also, just like with Rudolph Valentino's, once the house was demolished, the sightings seemed to stop. 
And on a side note, I'm very curious why sightings would stop once a house is demolished. The ghost that was haunting it isn't demolished by the construction crew, so why does it stop after that? Were they attached to the actual physical location, and when the physical location was destroyed, they could move on? Or what? I just don't know what to think of that. I'm very curious to see how many times a haunting has stopped once the building has been destroyed. Okay, let's continue on with this list. Let's go on to Clifton Webb. Now, he was best known for Laura, The Razor's Edge, and Sitting Pretty. He claimed his mom haunted his house, and several days before he died in October of 1966, he said, quote, I'm not leaving this house, even at death. The next homeowners, named Doug and Joyce, well, they saw him several times, actually. They said one time while then... One time, while enjoying drinks by the pool, they caught the sight of a swaying figure in the master bedroom. They said it was a dark, transparent shadow, the size and shape of Clifton. Okay, let's pause right there. You see a dark, transparent shadow. You can't go, well, that dark, transparent shadow looks like Clifton Webb or my friend or whoever else. No, it looks like a dark, transparent shadow. Sure, you can put two and two together and go, well, that's the master bedroom. Clifton Webb used to live here. He died in the house. Now I'm seeing something that is kind of roughly shaped like Clifton Webb. I get that, but still, come on. Doug goes on to say, I never saw it up close as Joyce did. I only saw it through a window when I was outside. I didn't see clothes or details, but he always resembled Clifton and seemed to be ageless. Doug also saw shadows in the hallway the size and shape of Maybell who was Clifton Webb's mom. (sighs) Again, let's pause. How did he know? Again, how he knew this, I have no idea, but sure, let's go with it. He saw a weird shape and said, oh yeah, there's Maybell. Doug's dogs, which is hard to say, would also look at the ghosts apparently too and reacted to cold spots in the hallway. He says they would not go near the cold spots in the hallway without barking enormously and often urinating on the spot. Fun fact, that's what I do when I see a ghost. Lights went on and off, and a cold present attacked a maid on several occasions. Hey, maid, if a cold present starts attacking you, leave. Like, I get like, oh, wow, there's a cold presence. Yeah, you don't have to leave for that. But if it starts attacking you, just just leave. Find a new job. Now, the story goes on to say that Joyce brought home one of Webb's films. When the dogs saw Clifton's image on the screen, all three began howling. All right, sure. These are all great stories. I can't confirm any of them. So, you know what to do. They go on to say that Joyce held a seance with good friends of Clifton's, including playwright Garson Kanan and his wife, Oscar winner Ruth Gordon. Future Oscar winner producer Dick Zanuck and several others. They said the seance convinced them all that Clifton was in the house. And the medium, Sybil Leak, did become Clifton in mood and spirit and intent. And most particularly, in language and dialect. They go on to say she told things that only they would know about Clifton. Things that Sybil could never have known. When asked why he stayed, he replied, as most actors would, Because I'm afraid I'll be forgotten. Interestingly enough, after the seance, neither Clifton nor Maybell were ever seen in the house again by Doug or Joyce. 
Now, they went on to divorce, and the house was sold. The next owners reported seeing a ghost couple dancing in the entry hall, but soon after that, the house was destroyed, and all activity stopped. Another case of that. And with that, that is part one, because trust me, there are tons more of these as well. But that's part one of Haunted Hollywood Part 2. Confused yet? You should be. So I guess I should say the next one would be part three of Haunted Hollywood. I hope you guys really like these Haunted Hollywood ones because I love researching them. I've always loved old Hollywood. I love walking around it. I love seeing it. I love watching old Hollywood black and white movies. I love knowing all of these backstories of these famous people from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. These tell-all books about them, I love everything about it. And like I said, Errol Flynn, you guys need to read up all you can if you want to. I'm not telling you have to. If you're interested after that story, you need to check out Errol Flynn because he seemed to be a interesting guy. I'll just put it that way. Well, what do you guys think? Would you guys like to do a tour of Haunted Hollywood? The real Haunted Hollywood, not this Hollywood tour BS sit in the back of a van thing, but an actual tour. Well, you can. I gave you most of the addresses and I gave you the stories. Feel free to go on your own Haunted Hollywood tour, save a couple of bucks, or send me a couple of bucks if you really want to, if you enjoyed it. But if you come out to Hollywood, make sure you don't just look at the stars on Hollywood Boulevard. Make sure you actually go to some of these old places like Musso and Frank's or the Roosevelt Hotel. These places that are still around, that are classic Hollywood, that are amazing looking. You're going to get a better time there, a better drink there, a better meal there. And frankly, you just might see a couple of ghosts. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Hallelujah. No, we lost it. No, we lost it.